If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Good afternoon and welcome to Hamilton Today. I'm the other Thompson. Shona Thompson. I'm usually on the morning show. Haven't been on the air at this hour in decades. So this could wind up being a very interesting day as the afternoon wears on. Now, I want to make sure right off the top that you know that Scott, Scott's not my brother. And he's not my husband. He's married to a lovely woman named Eileen. Some people have thought that over the course of the years that somehow we're related. We are no relation at all. Of course, we haven't had any, you know, DNA testing, so not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure. Coming up on the show today, Soup Fest is back in just a week. It is a very tasty fundraiser for Living Brock. We'll be taking a look at the return to Queen's Park today. They've just introduced their legislation on the expansion of surgeries for things like cataracts and eventually hip and knee replacement, and that will involve private clinics. Mike Schreiner also has made his decision, not since The Bachelor. Has there been such speculation? Around the Bay Road Race is in the news today because of some changes that will be going on with that. So we'll be speaking with CHML reporter and man on the run, Ken Mann. We'll also be talking about the finally called by-election for Hamilton Center. All that and so much more. But first, I'm wondering if you caught something that happened over the weekend that I found pretty interesting. Julie Black was singing the Canadian National Anthem at the NBA All-Star Game. Welcome Toronto, Ontario native and Canada's queen of R&B, Julie Black. Oh, Canada, our home on a native land, true patriots love it all. So as you've probably been hearing in the news and on various talk shows, uh, she changed a couple of the lyrics. One was our home on native land. And she also went with um, in all of us command. Um, And some are saying that that's, you know, kind of an honest rendition of the song. Uh, Some, however, are not happy about it at all. She actually posted this video earlier in the day in which she was getting her hair done and getting ready for the performance. She was talking about it. This this anthem has a different meaning now. Uh-huh. So there's certain words that are swapped. You know, you don't say in all of us, in all of our sons command, you say in all of us command. Mm-hmm. Some people say, to, some people sing it, oh, Canada, our home on native oh. land. Oh, okay. Not and native land, mm-hmm. right? That's That one word changes the meaning. Yeah, context for sure. Yeah. You know what? I think this has had the desired effect. And that is prompting a discussion. It makes you think. It makes you have an instant reaction. And perhaps we should explore in ourselves what that reaction is. My reaction was to pause and think about it and think about what that means. In the last few years, I've noticed something of a change, not a wholesale change in attitude, but more people are taking a harder look at some of the issues involved in things like land claims that have not yet been resolved. Issues like contaminated water on reserves in a nation like this with so much fresh water. And of course, in the last few years with the residential schools and the discoveries of so many unmarked graves. Those are issues uh, that really aren't off somewhere else. They all resonate right here in the Hamilton area. Think of the Haldeman Proclamation. Have you taken a look at it? Have you just read it? It's not that long. And even with the old English vernacular that's involved, it's actually pretty clear. Now, that's how part of my thinking went. So I believe Julie Black has really done something and, and started a conversation or rekindled a conversation in some cases. And I'd be really interested to hear what you have to say about it. My email address is Thompson at 900chml.com. And I'm on Twitter at at Shona Talk. It also brings us to the poll question of the day. Was President Biden's surprise trip to Ukraine on Monday a brave show of real strength that could alter the course of the war or simply some performance arts? 
You can vote at 900chml.com. Your options are a strong move or just for the cameras. You can also send me an email about your thoughts on that at Thompson at 900chml.com. Um, it, it's an interesting question, and hopefully we'll be getting into some of these issues a little bit later on. I'm in today and tomorrow for Scott uh, on the show here. Uh, so maybe if we don't get into the issues about the Cold War later on today, we might be able to do that. Um, some people are wondering, given President Biden's surprise trip to Ukraine and then his comments uh, in Poland today on NATO's stance and the U.S.'s position in that stance. And then, of course, the comments made by uh, Putin earlier today um, with regards to um, his stance and and withdrawing Russia uh, from the smart treaty. Um, You know, are we back into a Cold War situation? Somebody asked me that today, somebody who follows these things fairly closely and has never made a comment like that before. Um, It's interesting. It's a little scary. I don't know about you. I grew up during a large portion of the Cold War era and uh, really hope we don't get back into those days. But those decisions may not be up to us, although we might be able to have an impact. You're listening to Hamilton Today on 900 CHML. I'm Shona Thompson. I am in for Scott Thompson. And one of the best fundraisers around is coming back to in-person status a week today at the Hamilton Convention Center by Carmen's Soup Fest. It's the reason why Mulligatani is now my favorite soup. But that may change after next week. Joining us now to tell us more about it is Karen Craig of Living Rock. That is the organization that will benefit from all the incredible soup that's going to be served up a week today. Hi, Karen. Hi. Awesome to talk to you. you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, you're a longtime friend for sure. Oh, you guys have been with us since the beginning, and uh, yeah, just CHML has just been such a great support, and all our listeners. Thank well, you. You know what? This is a really easy fundraiser to get behind because it's so tasty. <laughs> Absolutely, I know people have been sold on soup since they've come. You're right, though. Some people just, you know, some thought it was just an entree or something, but they've fallen in love with soup through Soup Fest. I always was a fan, and that's why I was so excited about this um, opportunity that came. Gary Christensen offered us this. Um, he was a person who loved. He was a poet and uh, just loved Hamilton, loved the city, and loved soup. And when he brought this idea to us, we were just sold 21 years ago. So. Yeah. I, I can't believe it's 21 years. Mm-hmm. I know it's so long. Yeah, Gary walked in, I think, in the t- parade for the 20th, and then he passed away, and we do this in memory. We have a special award in his memory as part of it. So, yeah. Wow. Um, can you give me an idea of who's participating in this? Absolutely. I'd love to share the restaurants because this year is really all about soup. I mean, we walked into this going live, um, not knowing exactly what life was going to look like. So we really are making this all about the soup. And there's some new ones and old friends, too. So Apothecary Kitchen is involved. um, Afrolicious, Baki, Burnt Tongue, Nina's uh, Creative Kitchen, Flamborough Hills, Gage Park Diner, Green Machine Food Truck, Hamilton Convention Center by Carmen's, Kelsey's Original Roadhouse, Hottie Biscotti is joining us, uh, Royal Botanical Gardens, Stuffed, Thirsty Cactus, and Unruly Smoothies is joining us this year. So yeah, it's it's really a great lineup and some, yeah, it's going to be some surprises, that's for sure. Okay, hold up for a second. You said Hottie Biscotti? Well, they sneak in there. They've got treats. <laughs> <laughs> they and you know what? If if you want good biscotti, hottie biscotti is the place to go. Just trust me on that one. You know, when yeah. we say soup, it really doesn't do justice to what gets served up and ladled up at this yeah. event. Absolutely, because they're trying to win. They're winning for you are voting. So the public's voting for best soup, most creative soup, best display, tastiest heart smart soup, and then of course there's this tasting panel um and for their award soup too so this tasting panel if you go on our website livingrock.ca you're going to see this whole panel of celebrity people that are doing um they they can't see they can't see the soup they don't know who made it and they're tasting soup and they're going to judge as well for their award-winning soup so yeah it's really uh it's quite a contest for the restaurants and they take this really seriously and it really gives them a chance to really show off their skills for sure yeah actually a friend of mine is on that panel 
Ooh, okay. <laughs> Jane Allison, yeah. who is uh, okay. a good friend of this radio station. Uh, and uh, and I think she, you know, she's got some expertise there. In fact, all of your judges have particular expertise. Absolutely. I read them the other day and it's, yeah, it's beautiful to read. So go on the website and check it out. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, this is really all about helping to support Living Rock. This is your major fundraiser. Absolutely. And, yeah, and we've got some great sponsors this year, too. So I'm really grateful. I mean, even Platinum sponsor Grosso Hooper Law has been involved, like they've been involved since the beginning, uh, Grosso Hooper Law, and they're standing with us again. So lots of great sponsors as well. Um, but I wanted to talk about the work that you do. And, and I know that it has been certainly a challenge, as we've all had over the last couple of years, in trying to make sure that uh, there is a delivery of service that is greatly needed by at-risk youth in this city. And, you know, we've all lived through the COVID, the pandemic, the lockdowns, all of that stuff. It's been tough on everybody. But boy, has it been tough at, at for at-risk youth. Absolutely. So Judy, yeah, Julia Conway, our lead of operations, she, everything moved outside. We continued Tri-Rock. So nothing, we continued service right through the pandemic and uh, opened seven days a week. Uh, the city really recognized the rock as a key support for youth. And so seven days a week for physical and emotional support, um, we continued to, to serve. And we were just so glad to be able to be seven days a week and it's been awesome. So breakfast has been rolling, uh, drop in. We created a youth resource center in our front office. We actually remodeled it so that we could get six foot, foot distancing. And so we've got this beautiful space on the main floor with computers donated by Street Youth Planning Collaborative, uh, laundry facilities and uh, washrooms. And then upstairs is our big oasis. That's open for drop in one to four right now. They're doing screen printing and um, doing pink shirts right now upstairs and then dinner is 4 30 to 6 um, and so that's really important as well they love uh, to come for dinner programs so our employment programs are running our programming for street uh, for pregnant parenting youth and we've got a delivery truck so united way and the federal government helped us get a delivery truck and we're doing at least another kind of 60 deliveries um, a month for high-risk youth and youth that are just have a lot of anxiety or young parents love it so we don't want to lose some of the stuff we really want to retain these pieces that we found are really significant um you know and tri rock has found like i'm saying youth are standing up at their graduation they do eight weeks here at the rock uh funded by the federal government up to minimum wage for 30 hours a week and then they do 10 hours um sorry 10 weeks with an employer and uh, we're finding that youth are, you know, coming to their grads saying, look, I had anxiety, their mental health was, they were not doing well, they were sleeping all day or gaming all night. And, um, you know, they just, they, their confidence was down, they thought they would never get into TriRock, we'd never accept them. And here they are, doing this program, completing phase two, and you know, earning credits for work. Some of them, you know, are, have not been at school and have earned credits for work and they're doing so well and they're retaining jobs and they're doing really well. So I just say, you know, again, if you've got youth out there, if you know a young person who's just not thriving um, since the pandemic, for sure The Rock could be a very important step for them to really, like they do all the work here. They do all the work and they learn and build their skills and find community. Youth need community. They're not meant to be in isolation. So um, it's to see them develop friendships again has just been so important. So, yeah. Well, you know, Living Rock is really one of those great Hamilton organizations that's really kind of about what Hamilton is all about, which is you started small and, and it's just grown so much over the years. And it's one of the reasons why the CHML Y108 Children's Fund is so proud to be involved with you. Karen, we've got to leave it there. But until a week today at the Hamilton okay. Convention Center by Carmen's at Soup Fest, thank you so much for your time. Get your tickets online. Thanks. Oh, awesome. We'll see you next week, Karen. Take care. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. A lot has been happening at Queen's Park on this, the first day back after a break. And there have been some questions for Doug Ford, especially on his relationship with developers. And as we just heard on Dave Woodard's newscast, legislation on health care changes has just officially been introduced, although we did get a heads up that that was coming down the pike. Mike Schreiner has ended the speculation on whether he's green or a grit, and that almost seems like a reality show in the making. Joining us now is Alan Hale of Queen's Park Today. Thanks for joining us. Alan, especially with, you know, such a busy day for you. 
Oh, it's uh, crazy today, but I'm happy to be here. Um, So, I mean, there's a lot to wade through here. Uh, We heard this morning, let's get this out of the way first. Uh, Mike Schreiner has ended his speculation. Uh, I think there has been, uh, it, it almost took on, a bit of an attitude of the bachelor, <laughs> who he was going to choose. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a decision I don't think that come, will come to a surprise to just about anybody. He, for months before uh, before there was this letter that came out with 40 liberals, very high-profile liberals, like former cabinet ministers and former leaders, and at least one current MPP calling him for, on him to run for leader of another party, uh, before that, he was very, very adamant that he didn't want to do this. And he told us, uh, told reporters at the park today that uh, really the only reason he did consider it for the past three weeks was because he felt that he owed the people who wrote this letter to at least, you know, talk to people about the idea to say that, um, you know, they had sort of stuck their necks out within the party for to, you know, uh, try to promote the idea that there should be a new kind of politics at Queen's Park, that they should, that the opposition should be doing something differently, that there should be more unity among the progressive parties at the legislature. And because that they had gone out of their way and probably undermined their position in the Liberal Party to some degree, he was a, he felt duty bound to at least like talk to people about it. And he did. And he came back and decided they still didn't want to do it. So that's sort of where we are. Um, I think there's quite a few people in the Liberal Party who are breathing a sigh of relief. We had there's definitely some stiff opposition to the idea. Um, and we had yeah, it's so as some people will be disappointed for sure, but a lot of other people in the Liberals will definitely be relieved. Well, I you know I was wondering when that letter first came out, how do the duly elected Liberal MPPs right now who would be contenders for the leadership, how do they feel about this? Well, the thing is, there's there is technically nobody uh, in the race yet because it hasn't started. A lot of people who are thinking about do, uh, in the about going into the race are sort of holding their uh, announcement until the uh, AGM, which is happening the audio, uh, annual general meeting of the party, which is happening at the uh, beginning of March, and they're going to sort of hash out what the uh, the rules for the leadership race will be and the timing, and then it'll happen after that. And everybody's sort of waiting to see what those rules will be. So no one is actually officially announced. But the people who have talked about it, I mean, Mitzi Hunter is one. The She's a former um, health uh, minister, I believe. And she is thinking about running. And she today at the legislature, she was sort of like holding her cards close to her chest. She didn't really want to like talk about what she thought of the uh, of uh, Shriner's bid one way or the other. but uh, And that seemed to be a lot of what the liberals were doing today. They just sort of like, oh, well, it's it's whatever. You know, uh, we still like uh, Mike Shriner and we'll still work with him, but it doesn't really matter one way or the other what he decided. So they're sort of playing it like it's no big deal. Although there was definitely people in the party who did think it was a big deal. There was a, at that same AGM, uh, one MPP put forth a, uh, uh, an amendment to the party constitution that would have blocked anybody who didn't have a party membership as of Jan- January 1st of this year from running in a le- leadership race, which was pretty obviously targeted at Mike Schreiner to stop him from running. Yeah. Um, on the uh, issue of uh, of pertinent things, certainly, uh, as we just heard in the newscast with Dave Woodard, uh, Ontario's health minister has officially tabled the bill uh, that would allow the province to expand private clinics in the health care uh, sector, uh, in particular for performing cataract surgeries and eventually hip and knee replacements as well. And a lot of people are very afraid that this is the thin edge of the wedge towards a two-tier health care system. Well, that's definitely true. I mean, we um, uh, people have definitely been worried about this bill. It's been a lot. It's been expected for um, got to be more than a month since the uh, province has announced that it was doing this. So this is the legislation that is going to make the um, uh, private surgical clinics possible that they're going to allow uh, not just for-profit clinics, mind you, but like, but definitely some uh, for-profit clinics to uh, do more surgeries like knee replacements and hip replacements, uh, stuff that people often wait a long time for, and that these um, clinics will be able to do that um, uh, outside of hospitals, and that they'll be able to, uh, 
or that they'll get paid by the government for those uh, for those operations. Nobody is going to be like asked to fork over money for the hip replacement itself. But the government has definitely not ruled out the possibility of um, of maybe they might talk to you about paying a bit extra to get a really nice fake uh, or replacement hip. Ah, uh, yes. Better than the one that OHIP would pay for, and that yeah. might be allowed. I haven't been through, I haven't read through the bill yet to see what it says on the concept of upselling, so I can't really say what is allowed under the legislation because it just dropped in the House, but that was definitely a concern, and it's just, a, yeah, it is a lot of concern that this is going to create a, a private system that's going to drive, that's going to attract away um people uh, from hospitals with like better hours and pay, and it's just going to undermine the stability of the public system. That is the worry. Well, Alan, certainly you are going to be busy over the next several weeks. A very busy session of Queen's Park is now underway. Thank you for taking time to join us today. No problem. Thanks so much. Alan Hale of Queen's Park Today. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. Well, this is the day that you have been warned about for some time. Netflix has made some administrative changes. You have to set a primary location on your account, and the aim is to cut down on password sharing. Here to discuss this further is Bill Brio, who is a television critic and author and a frequent guest on this program and others on CHML, and we're always grateful to have his expertise. Good afternoon, Bill. I almost said good morning, but good afternoon. Good afternoon, Shauna. Um, so, you know, what has the reaction been so far? What have you been hearing from people or seeing on Twitter? Yeah, a lot of pushback, and uh, this isn't surprising. Netflix tested this first in South America uh, prior to Christmas, like in November and uh, October, I think. And yeah, a lot of pushback there, too, you'd see in social media. So people are resisting it because, yeah, they've enjoyed this idea that they could share their password if their kids went off to university in BC or anywhere else in Canada, they could, you know, share a password. And that's been going on for so many years. So when you take something like that away, people start to say, well, what the heck, you know, well, I'm paying all this, why not? Well, as you said, they, they've tried it out in some other countries first. One of the uh, things that I had uh, seen about this was that there was a survey done. I think it was somewhere in the order of about 65% of subscribers said that they'd be dropping their account entirely. And we all know that, you know, a lot of people say they're going to do something, but they don't really do it. Um, but some are going to be dropping their account. Some people are ticked off about this. Yeah, and part of the problem, too, for Netflix, if you look at, and just today, the, on Tuesday, they released their list of the top 10 most watched shows on Netflix. And in the last week in Canada, uh, you know, they weren't exactly the hottest shows in the land. You know, there was a couple of dating shows. Uh, Outlander was up there, number seven. Forgetting Sarah Marshall was number eight in terms of most watched movies. This is only because of Valentine's Day. This is a 2008 movie. So it's not like, you know, when they had The Crown was really hot or other Netflix shows that you had to watch. Uh, so when you're asking people to, uh, you know, hey, stop sharing passwords and people are saying, well, why am I subscribing anyway? There's nothing on here I really want to see. Yeah, you know, I noticed that uh, over the course of the weekend, and I, I, my husband and I were saying, like, really? These are your top 10 movies that have been out for, you know, years, if not a decade or more? Yeah, no, it's surprising. So many reruns of uh, shows, CBC shows, uh, Working Moms was in the top 10 a few weeks ago, and these are things that we can see anytime, uh, you know. Uh, so you wonder, um, it, it's hard to say, well, you know, you're not going to get this or that. It's like when Apple came out with Get Back, the Beatles documentary, that was a big carrot for a lot of us who had waited to, say, uh, subscribe to uh, to um, Disney+. Plus. Uh, you know, you always have to have something there that really drives the subscription. And right now, Netflix doesn't really seem to have it. Uh, what happens if you don't set your primary location on your account? Well, there's arguing now that, you know, wherever your your IP, wherever it's from, you get one of them and you can only share it within the your household. So you could have it upstairs in the bedroom or your, your you could watch stream on your phone 
Uh, once you get up to four or five of these, though, that's it in terms of if you're paying the premium subscription. If you want to share it with your, you know, this, that, or the other, you can, they have other offers there now, sort of, if you want to pay more. But frankly, people are looking to pay less. You know, it's inflation. It costs a lot. You go to the grocery store or get some gas. You're starting to look at what you pay for TV if you're trying to save some money. Well, yeah, what seems to be happening in the streaming platform sector is is kind of what we got really fed up with with a lot of cable companies uh, in terms of, you know, if you want to buy, you may want one channel, but you've got to take the package that has, you know, four others that you don't want. Um, and it's starting to seem like some of the streaming services are going down that road. And, you know, we're experienced. We're not going to yeah. pay for, for, some, for a bunch of stuff we don't want anymore. Consumers are getting more savvy. You know, the thing is, though, you can always drop your subscription for a month. If, if say, you have three of these cable, four or five, you might have Apple TV, you might have Paramount Plus, you know, there's so many now. But uh, once you've seen, you know, Sylvester Stallone's new show on Paramount Plus, you, you may think, well, that's it. Uh, Apple has some pretty hot shows right now. Beyond Tomorrow is Hello Tomorrow, I mean, uh, with Billy Crudup is brand new and really good. Uh, you know, and then they've got uh, a couple of other ones coming up, uh, one with uh, Eugene Levy, the reluctant traveler. Yes. They're going to have, uh, you know, the big soccer show, Ted Lasso, is coming up in March. So people are starting to think, well, you know, maybe I'm going to put my money on this one, but I'll, I'll drop Netflix. And that's sort of where, where we're at. Yeah. Um, you know, I th- and I think a, a number of people are feeling the same way. I remember they used to have this big downloading event on the 400 um, at, at one of the malls there. So you could download some shows if you're going up to the cottage. But if you had Internet access at your cottage or, for instance, tomorrow night, I may have to stay in Hamilton because of the ice storm. You know, if I wanted to log on to Netflix, that's now going to be a little bit more problematic. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, it's, it harkens back. Some older listeners might recall wandering for an hour in a blockbuster video store trying to find the family's <laughs> entertainment for a weekend. And that's sort of where you were at on Netflix and others now. You, you can literally sit there for 40 minutes and flip, 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 flip and not find anything anymore. And if you're paying to do that, you're starting to think, what kind of an idiot am I? <laughs> it may be something that uh, they'll have to take into consideration pretty soon. As always, Bill, thank you for your expertise and your time. My pleasure, Sean, anytime. Bill Brio is a television critic and author. We've been talking about Netflix. Have you set your primary location yet? You may have to do that. Joining us now is Ken Mann. Uh, he is not only our reporter on the go. Uh, he was covering the Abound the Bay Road Race uh, newser today because there are some changes to talk about, but an avid marathoner as well. So thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure, Sean. Now the mic's on. Hey, there we go. <laughs> it's my, my, it's my, my first pleasure. Day. It's my first day. <laughs> Um, okay, so we, we've got some changes coming. Obviously, some good planning uh, well in advance of next year's Around the Bay Road Race because the usual endpoint will be changing. That's right. So for this year, everything's pretty much as normal as it's been since, I guess, 2006. Um, the big question mark for this year has been the lift bridge with the uh, with all of the, the construction going on there. But the plan is that that will be done about a week before race day on March 26th. So that shouldn't be a problem. So yes, as usual this year, it will start outside of uh, First Ontario Centre, finishing right inside the arena. And as you say, for next year, that becomes a little bit different because like other groups, the Around the Bay Road Race has had to do some planning to try to find a different place for its finish line since the uh, the arena will be undergoing its renovation. And so the plan for next year is to start outside of and to finish inside of Tim Hortons Field. So that will be that will be interesting for next year and for as many years as the renovation goes on and and. It's kind of been left open-ended by by the race director as to how long this move will be for. Will it be permanent? Will it be temporary? We shall see. But for next year, at least, yes, Tim Hortons Field will be the start and end point. Well, it's it's been interesting to have it indoors at uh, First Ontario Centre uh, for the last several years because it's a great way for spectators to enjoy the end of the race. It's very comfortable. You're out of the weather and it's really great for the competitors as well. Yeah, I've always enjoyed that uh, that element. It's I, I think it's the only race that I've done, I think, that has 
taken place outside and then gone inside to finish. Uh, I've done other races that have finished in outdoor stadiums and arenas, but uh, it, this is this is a very unique event. And as you say, in in March, it it helps to get the the spectators out of the cold and inside where they can comfortably wait. Uh, who knows what kind of weather, of course, you're going to get in that final week of March. So uh, this this outdoor finish next year could be interesting. Uh, to say the least in terms of weather for, for those who aren't running, it's often more of a challenge than for those who are because, of course, once you've run so much, so far up to 30K, obviously you're warmed up and at some point you kind of stop worrying about what the weather's like outside. And you just want to finish. This is it, yes. <laughs> yeah. But at least, you know, it's still in a stadium. People will be in the stands and, and the finishers will be able to have that, that cheer and that applause and, uh, and that real feeling of special accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and outdoor stadiums make for interesting finishes. I've, I, there's a few of them that I've done over the years. The, uh, the Manitoba Marathon finishes inside of the stadium where the Blue Bombers play. That's one. Uh, the the Pro Football Hall of Fame marathon in Canton, Ohio, as well, finishes within its football stadium. And uh, there's been a few others that I've done over the years, and I always enjoy those. They they it's it's an interesting element for racing. And uh, the the other thing that will be interesting for the Bay Race when it moves down to the East End to Tim Hortons Field for the start and finish will be it it moves all of the the elements of the race course a little bit as well. So instead of having the big hill at the 26 27 kilometer mark it's it moves back a few kilometers to you know 23 probably in terms of the the distance and then you're you're going to have that run through the city to the finish that will be interesting it moves other elements the beach earlier in the race so it it's almost like a different race when it when it changes like that and i have a feeling that i will uh get myself going here and 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 register for next year because I think that'll be interesting. Yeah, it'll be a new challenge for people who have been so used to the same course for what it's since 2006. You, yeah, that's right. It started inside at First Ontario Centre, I believe, in 2006. So it's it's been it's been that way. And yeah, so any little bit of difference is always exciting for from the runner's perspective. I think, especially if you've done the race a few times. Yeah, it, it, it for somebody who obviously is not a marathoner or a runner of any kind. Um, does it really change your prep having uh, something like the hill, which has been a classic feature in that race to the Grim Reaper still oh, yes. out there? Yeah. But, but having that at a different point in the race, does that change your preparation at all? I don't know that it changes the, the preparation very much. You're still running... 30k. You still have the rolling hills all the way along North Shore, which are an under under appreciated challenge because those really those really work you over for a while before you get to the the big hill. And of course, that that uphill into LaSalle Park is is no small challenge either. So there's a lot there's a lot to think about in the second half of that race in terms of the hills. So you're preparing for that anyway. I, I guess it, it changes your mindset a little bit in knowing where you need to really focus. In the, in the course of the race, but probably not so much in terms of your preparation. Uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, the Burlington Lift Bridge, once again being a little bit of a question mark. I don't think it's going to be as much of a surprise as it was that infamous year where it went up <laughs> mid-race and some yeah. people turned around partway through. But there always is a bit of a question mark. One would think that you know it would just be down because there's been some construction, and even if that construction is not yet complete, it really isn't going to impact the race. But Apparently, there's a question mark. Well, uh, it didn't sound like too much of a question mark this morning from the race director. She's pretty much received assurances that that project will be done. And it kind of needs to be because there's really no other alternate way to to get from one side to the other. You're not going over the Skyway. No. Uh, so it, it, your options are pretty limited down there. Yeah. But I know, I know people who have been involved in the race have said that infamous year when the Burlington Lift Bridge actually was raised partway through uh, the competition, that it actually gave more attention to the race than it had had in a long time and reinvigorated uh, some interest in it. Well, sure. And, and that that was an unfortunate incident for sure. And uh, it, it's 
it, it's terrible to get caught behind something that you have no control yeah. over. Um, years before they changed the route, it used to go down Wilson Street, of course, to the east end before it would cut up towards the north shore. They stopped doing that because of train delays. And I got caught behind the train one year. <laughs> and that is very, very frustrating because you're moving along. You're, you're yeah. yeah. At that point, you're, you're almost 10K into it and you're really kind of focused and into your rhythm. And then there's a train and yeah. you, everybody has to stop. And uh, that was that was that was rough. The year that the bridge was up, I was ahead of it. Fortunately, well, I didn't get caught on that. See, if but, you're a really uh, good runner, <laughs> you know, it's... you get to avoid some of these things. The Around the Bay Road Race is coming up in about five weeks. So get your training miles in. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We learned today that there may not have been working smoke alarms in the fatal fire at a home on Century Street in Hamilton last week. As I mentioned, one person died, but five others were injured to varying degrees. It's a good reason and a good time to take a a long, hard look at your home fire safety, especially after Family Day. Joining us is Hamilton Fire Chief Dave Cunliffe. Dave, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're busy and I appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me, Shona. Um, So if somebody is doing their own home fire audit or fire inspection, what should they be looking for? Well, first and foremost, uh, I think you uh, really hit the nail on the head off the top is uh, we want people to make sure that they have working smoke alarms in their homes. And it's it's a law here in the province of Ontario that they need to have working smoke alarms on all levels of their of their residence and they have to be outside of sleeping areas. And so it's important that uh, not only are they working, uh, so they need to be tested on a regular basis. They need then to change the batteries at least twice a year. And we certainly promote that in terms of uh, change your clock, change your battery. And then the other thing is they want to make sure that they uh, the uh, life expectancy, so there's a 10-year life expectancy on smoke alarms, that the manufacturer date, they check it to make sure that it's within that 10-year period. Well, yeah, and if uh, if you have one of those older ones that seem to go off every time somebody has a shower or go off every time somebody makes toast, um, probably a good indicator that you need to update that and the technology has improved. Well, certainly there's been lots of good changes in technology. And now uh, what you find in, in a number of uh, of the the detector units that are available, certainly in the CO, carbon monoxide detectors, which also are mandated in the province of Ontario to be in your home, they're a sealed battery. Uh, so they're both a plug-in with a sealed battery that has a life expectancy. And you can also get smoke alarms that also have a permanent sealed battery along with a, uh, a the power backup. So there's a whole number of them out there. Uh, quite Frankly, the, the biggest thing is make sure they're working. The other thing uh, in terms of uh, safety audit for, the, for people in their homes is to have an escape plan. Um, you always need to know two ways out from every level and every room uh, in your home because you never know when that may that exit way may be cut off. And, and I guess one of the things that I'm trying to stress to people over the last little while, and certainly, uh, you know, we, this is the second really difficult fire we've had in the city. Uh, just, before, just before New Year's, we lost four people up on the mountain. And in that case uh, as well, there were no, no working smoke alarms. The fire marshal confirmed that one, and we're still waiting for the one uh, that happened on Century, but fires are burning hotter and faster, and a lot of that is because of the contents that are in homes today. They're not made of the natural products that uh, they were many years ago. There's a lot of synthetics and, and uh, resins and flammable materials that are involved, so they're, they're burning hotter faster. Also, we have open concept. Everybody likes open concept, so without the containment that we used to have where we'd have the four walls, uh, fires are able to get bigger, and so what's happening is People only have minutes uh, to get out, and that those minutes are really relied on early warning. So again, uh, as we're seeing, you know, uh, the Century Fire uh, at 9:20 in the morning, and we had fire that was uh, uh, blowing out of the front and the back of this residence, fully involved first floor, uh, heavy fire on the second floor. I'm really glad you brought up um, the point about uh, carbon monoxide detectors. And one of the other reasons I wanted to talk to you today is because, you know, we've had the warnings about the potential for a bad storm or a bad ice storm. Um, and so some people may be using wood-burning stoves in order to augment their heat should the, the power go out. Um, and having a carbon monoxide detector is really important in those situations. Well, yeah, it is. Uh, so a couple of things. Uh, when we have ice storms, uh, you know, furnaces, uh, whether it's ice or snow, there can be a buildup on the uh 
<clears throat> on the piping system that uh, the exhaust systems uh, for the uh, for the gas fired appliance if they get blocked in any way it, what it can mean is is that the, uh, the the fumes will then stay inside the residence and you can have a buildup of CO also uh, gas fired appliances if you don't have complete combustion uh, you can have uh, of gas that's now escaping into the residence again causing CO the other thing uh, relative to a storm is you know people are now using uh, generators much more frequently when we have power outages, and you want to make sure that those uh, generators are vented in the right in, a, in the right place. One of the things that we strongly recommend is if you've got a generator, make sure it's not near a window or a, a, a source that can get back into the house, because a lot of the generators are diesel fueled or gas fired, and they will create uh, CO when they're running. So things to be m- mindful for. Absolutely. Uh, You mentioned earlier that it seems as though um, uh, fires are burning hotter. It also seems that we're getting more home fires and more multiple alarm fires. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So what happened, uh, our trends that we've seen, we were seeing a really good uh, decrease in structure fires overall uh, from uh, 2013 to uh, right through to 2020. All of a sudden in, in 2021, and we can sort of explain some of that because that was, we had lockdown periods during the pandemic, so more people were at home, we saw an increase. We saw the same dec- the, the same amount of increase in one year that we had seen a decrease uh, in all the years prior. And that increase continues. So Last year, 2022, we ended up with 323 structure fires in the city, and 72% of those, 235, were residential structures. The big thing is, there's a couple of things. One is, is that 51% of those homes did not have working smoke alarms. So that, again, back to our earlier conversation, absolutely critical. The other piece is, is that you're right, these fires are bigger, and when they're happening in high-density homes, uh, townhouses, uh, things of that, uh, structures of that nature, is not just confined to the one unit anymore because of the way that these fires are growing faster and then spreading. So we saw multiple alarms, which uh, means a much larger uh, amount of resource required to deal with these calls. Uh, It's almost gone two and a half times since 2019. So we had 40 of these events last year. We're already at 10 this year. That's uh, that's chilling. I mean, it it must really impact not only you, but on fire planning in the city, um, that there's been this kind of an increase. Well, certainly. Uh, it's very concerning to me as the fire chief and certainly uh, concerning to all of my staff because, uh, you know, not only are we seeing people getting hurt and killed, but we're seeing significant damage where it's not just impacting one or two families. Uh, it's impacting multiple families. And again, in the city where, you know, um, we need uh, additional housing to help people get into a situation where they lose their house due to fire is, is really traumatic. The, the other piece is, is that these fires, the majority of them are preventable. And what I mean by that is in residences, the top three causes, they and they have been for years, is unattended cooking, the uh, improper disposal of smokers materials, and electrical in nature. And a lot of this is is that people just aren't making the right choices. Uh, you know, uh, they're getting distracted. Uh, they're they're leaving things on the stove, and next thing you know, in a matter of minutes, we've got significant fires happening. And again. You know, without early warning and smoke detectors, people are getting injured and killed. And so people need to take responsibility for their safety and the safety of the others that are in the homes. Well, Dave, thank you so much for taking time with us today. Well, you're welcome, and thank you. Hamilton Fire Chief Dave Cunliffe, we've been talking about uh, doing a home safety audit. Make sure you do that today before the ice storm hits tomorrow, because they don't call it an emergency if you have time for it. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The by-election for Hamilton Center has finally been called. March 16th is the voting day, and it's shaping up to actually be pretty interesting, uh, certainly for a by-election, but even by regular election standards. There's a very interesting horse race going on there. Joining us now is Professor Emeritus in Political Science from McMaster University, Henry Jasek. Henry, what a pleasure to speak to you. Okay, nice nice talking to you again. <laughs> uh, the, the province waited till the last possible day for this by-election to be called. I mean, it was right down to the wire. Yes, it was. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why, although 
Yeah, the only thing that uh, the only thing that probably jumps out, but it may be wrong, is the fact that uh, a lot of people will be gone uh, that week uh, because it's uh, break week for the schools, and so a lot of people will be traveling, and and probably that'll uh, take take uh, the the number of people who normally vote will probably be lower this time. But apathy usually favors the incumbents, and that would be the NDP in this case. Yeah, it may very well. It, yeah, I, you're absolutely right. I think and, uh, what you said earlier about this being really uh, probably a very good uh, competitive race uh, is, is correct. I think all three of the major parties are you know, in it. I'm, I don't expect too many votes for the Green Party. Um, you know, the area is not really... You know, usually, uh, you know, interested in, in the Green Party uh, in in, uh, in that area. So, that we, but the other three parties, I think, uh, will all have uh, a substantial vote. So, it, it's worth voting uh, for the people in that riding. And and you know, these are, th- you know, if you're talking about the three main political parties, these are three very dynamic candidates. Sarah Jama certainly has a profile as an activist. Mm-hmm. Uh, Deirdre Pike has has been around Hamilton for a long time, very well known. And uh, having a police officer run for the PC seems very on brand. So, and he's been a staff sergeant. Um, so, I mean, he's going to have some profile as well. And the PCs are pumping a lot of money into this. Yeah, they are. I, I suspect they don't really think they're going to be able to win it, but I think probably, uh, but they may, that's possible, but I think they don't want to be embarrassed by a very low number. So, you know, I, I don't think they want to be, you know, just, you know, blown out of the water. So that's, uh, that's probably why we're seeing they're putting quite a bit of money in it. And, uh, so, but we'll see what happens, but it, uh, you know, it is going to be an interesting race and interesting election night. Well, one of the things that I did want to talk to you about is something that uh, has been a trend, uh, particularly particularly for the progressive conservatives in the last couple of elections. And that's not really allowing their candidates either to speak to the media, uh, to do interviews or to debate. Well, yes. One of the, I mean, basically, I think what their 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 concern is they're they're oftentimes running people who haven't really run before. They're not they're not normal politicians. Now, a normal politician, the first thing they have to really get developed in in the way they speak is they have to avoid problems. They they have to be careful about saying something that's going to be very controversial. So you always have to. So they have to worry about that, and uh, you know, and and certainly, you know, he's the, 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 their their candidate, the a police sergeant, has a very good record. Uh, you know, seems like a great guy, but the life of a policeman and the, the type of work that he does is not you know, the same as uh, what, what politicians do, and they likely speak uh, differently. So it, it's, it's, it's a big jump for him. So he has, I'm sure they're worried, he, to, you know, they don't want him to essentially say something that uh, he could say as a police officer, but becomes somewhat political controversial. So they, that's why I think they're, they're very careful about letting a candidate like that uh, really, you know, do, you know, say what they want to say when they want to say it. Yeah, but here's the part that really bugs me as a voter. Right. If you're somebody who is basically applying for a $140,000 a year job, show up for the job interview. Right. Yeah, they, the, the one thing is, yeah, if you have somebody, you what you'll have to do is basically tr- train them and go through some scenarios and, you know, real-life uh, situations uh, in terms of meeting the press so that they uh, they know how to essentially, uh, you know, defend the party. I mean, that person has to defend the party, but to make sure they don't wander away and say something that's going to, you know, get the, the party in trouble. I mean, sometimes uh, the person can do that, and and no, and no one will pay attention to it. And this is very normal. I remember in the early days, I, I was a friend of uh, Lincoln Alexander for the longest time. But I remember he was talking to me about his first term uh, when he was a MPP. And sometimes he'd get a call uh, early in the mornings about some controversy or something that's happened, and he would give his. They would ask for his opinion, and Link would give his opinion, and he'd put the phone down. and He said, "Oh my God, I hope I didn't say something." That 
that my leader is going to be really upset about. <laughs> well, I, I don't think that happened too terribly often. No, not with Link. Link, Link no. was always uh, was very good about even, well, he had run before, too, as well. And he was a lawyer, too. So as a lawyer, lawyers, you know, have, have a sense of how to avoid uh, certain, you know, <laughs> problems. <laughs> well, one of the things I've, I've always said about Lincoln Alexander is I loved to introduce him at events, yes. but I really hated to follow him. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, he was, I brought him, he was the first person that I would bring into my classes at McMaster, uh, and he was really, really great. He'd come in, and I'd have a class of 400 in Canadian politics, and I would just say, listen, uh, we're going to talk about the Parliament, but you're not going to hear me. You're going to talk about a guy who is in Parliament and really knows what's going on, and he was just fabulous. Well, Henry, thanks so much for your insights. I appreciate it. And no doubt over the next, what, five, six weeks, we're going to have more opportunities to hear what you have to say about this. Okay, very good. Nice talking to you, Sean. Uh, Henry Jasek, Professor Emeritus in Political Science at McMaster University. We've been talking about the upcoming Hamilton Center by-election. has been called for March the 16th. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The cost of food continues to climb, and we got some new numbers from Stats Canada today about inflation overall, and in particular, uh, what has been happening in the food sector. Every time you go to the grocery store, it seems like you are shelling out more and more and more and making more adjustments to what it is you would normally buy because some of that food is getting out of the reach of average Canadians. Joining us on the line now is Eric Cam, who's a professor of macro economics, monetary economics, international monetary economics, and so much more with Toronto Metropolitan University. Eric, thank you for joining us this afternoon. It is my pleasure to finally speak to the smartest Thompson on the radio. (laughs) Well, thanks very much. I'm sending out a a memo to Scott. Anyway, um, we did get those uh, stats today uh, that said the annual inflation rate for this month is at 5.9%. That is slightly better than some economists had expected it was going to be. It is, but it's a little bit of a game of look over here and not over here. So just in case anybody doesn't know, what StatsCan does is they take a basket, a representative basket of a bunch of goods, hundreds of goods, really, and they figure out the price of that basket of goods. And and now, more recently, month over month, they're figuring out the price of that basket. And so what the government wants, of course, is that price to go down right now. And it is. And so the government is standing proud saying, look, we're bringing down inflation. But you got to be kind of critical and you got to look at the numbers and realize that basically that number falling is nothing more than the price of gas falling at the gas station. Now, that's great. I drive a car too, and I'm happy to see it back in the $1.35 range. But it doesn't ignore the fact that food prices, which is really the most important price to anybody who has a household and children, is up about 11%. And so, again, you've got to be critical. You have to look at the number as an aggregate. And it's nice that it's kind of trending down. But is it really trending down when you look at what it takes to run and operate a household? Most of those numbers, like food, like interest rates, things like that, they're still only going in one direction. And that's up. Well, I'm glad you said that because, you know, even taking a look at the overall price uh, in the food sector, you really have to kind of pull those numbers apart as well to get into what I'm actually putting into my grocery basket. Well, that's the thing, you know, and I often say you don't need a PhD in economics, although it does come in handy, but you don't need a doctorate to walk through your local establishment as I did today. And I'm being deadly serious when I say I looked at celery at $5.99 and I said, forget it. And my kid loves celery, but $5.99 is ridiculous. All you have to do is take a walk through the grocery store and see where prices are. And on those goods that people should be eating, which are the Canada Food Guide, fruits, vegetables, things like that, proteins, prices are way up. And as an economist, what do I worry about? One thing, I worry about people's ability to feed and house their families. And right now, in no way are the prices to do those things going down. So you can take, if you want, some solace in the fact that people will tell you inflation is going down. But me, the uh, glass half empty economist, will tell you in no way that you're going to recognize anytime soon with the exception of filling up your car. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm just taking a look at some of the numbers that were crunched today. Uh, meat, 7.3% bump. And you know what? For most people, it doesn't even matter because you're not buying beef right now. It's just, it's too expensive. It is. And it's a terrible thing. It's too expensive to eat healthy right now. And what a horrible thing that is to say if you're someone that has to feed your family. And then, of course, you'd like to have somewhere to feed your family, like your home. And mortgage rates and interest rates and rental rates are still going up at at rates we haven't seen since the 1970s. So it's a very, very difficult time right now to be running a household and raising a family. And the only suggestion I have is the same suggestion my grandfather gave me 50 years ago, which is watch your spending. That you can try to control. Make sure you don't waste your money right now. No conspicuous consumption. If you're one of the people that they say are one paycheck away from insolvency, then you are doing nothing but buying the necessities. And wait until things change before you start being a little bit less frugal with your dollars. Yeah, I mean, growing up, um, you know, we had one paycheck for seven people in my family, five kids and the two adults. So I, I learned all the lessons about, you know, shopping um, and paying really close attention to all the flyers every week, uh, using coupons, buying only what was on sale. I mean, we would have steak once every seven weeks because my mom would buy one per week and then sort of stock up so that we could all have a steak meal every seven weeks. Yes. I mean, we're not supposed to talk about our personal lives, but I didn't come from wealth either. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's one of the things that people do forget over time. They talk about the 70s and the 80s and they remember, you know, this time long since vanished. But in terms of economic um, analysis, the 1970s were a horrible time. Gross domestic product was falling. Prices are rising. And frankly, that's where we're heading to today because we haven't talked yet about the labor market, which has done very well. But if inflation finally hits the labor market and people start to lose their jobs, that's the last domino to fall because people can still afford to feed their families to some extent if they have a job. If this hits the labor market and unemployment starts to rise, that's just the tip of the iceberg because then you just flat out can't afford to feed your family. So then you're going to have levels of unemployment and inflation. We call that stagflation. We haven't seen since Dallas was the number one television show. Yeah. My father, incidentally, was a mortgage manager during the 1970s and 1980s. So I know very well of what you are speaking. But the other thing that I'm also paying attention to are things like, you know, um, orange juice is going to skyrocket. You know, the, the cost of an orange uh, in its natural state has gone way, way up. And uh, also looking at uh, the drought that's been going on in the plains and in places where cattle's graze. So, I mean, you know, with the big price bump in, in beef, that's only going to get worse. It is only going to get worse. It's absolutely only going to get worse before it gets better. And that's why there's never been more of a necessity to be a savvy consumer. And as you said, cut coupons, do whatever you have to do. And start finding reasonable substitutes. If some things just go beyond your capability and your scope of being able to afford them, then you find reasonable substitutes. So if fresh orange juice goes to five, six, seven ninety-nine for a liter, then maybe you look at frozen orange juice. Is it the best thing? No. But is it a reasonable substitute? Yes. These are hard times. And I said, there's many people out there that are one paycheck. And the many people, there was a study that said a lot of people are $200 away from insolvency. You can't not buy food, but you can really be discriminating and see how far your dollars can take you. Eric, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Stay healthy. You too. Eric Cam is a professor of macroeconomics, monetary economics, and a whole lot more at Toronto Metropolitan University. U.S. President Joe Biden made an unannounced surprise visit to Ukraine yesterday. He was at NATO today, and he was saying that there are some hard and bitter days ahead for Ukraine, but he has pledged that the United States and its allies would have Ukraine's back as the war with Russia is soon to enter its second year. His comments came one day after his unannounced trip to Kiev. One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kiev. Well, I just come from a visit to Kiev, and I can report Kiev stands strong. <laughs> Kiev stands proud. It stands tall. And most important, it stands free. 
Before Biden's speech in Warsaw, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced that Moscow would suspend its participation in the last remaining nuclear arms control pact with the United States. Uh, so I wanted to speak to an expert about all of this and, and how this is playing in the United States. What is the reaction to this latest announcement from Putin? So that's why we got in touch with Brian J. Karam, who's a political analyst for CNN, a White House reporter. He's also the author of the book Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It, as well as the podcast Just Ask the Question. So, Brian, just going to ask you the question. Uh, are, 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 are we into another Cold War? Yeah, uh, without a doubt. It's, hopefully it won't be a, a hot one. Um, it's, it's definitely got all the earmarks, all the makings of, of, a, of a Cold War, and you can't, you have to look at what President Biden has done. He's thumbed his nose at uh, Vladimir Putin. He's he's called his bluff. Uh, Putin has decided that instead of uh, being taking this line down, he's just going to back out of a a treaty with the U.S. So it's it's the most precipitous and the most difficult international relationship that we have. And it certainly is beginning to look more and more like it's the same relationship that we had during the Cold War. Do you think that uh, this backing out of uh, the nuclear arms control pact, is that something that he inserted into his speech today because Biden went to Ukraine yesterday? Exactly. Um, it, it had uh, Biden not gone uh, to Kiev, but here's the thing, you know, <laughs> the Russians also knew it. Our, our um, intelligence agents, agency con- contacted theirs. They were well aware ahead of the time. It was a surprise, nonetheless. But they were ahead. They were uh, aware of it ahead of time before we got there. So yes, as soon as they found out what was going on and how uh, Biden intended to use the situation to go after Vladimir Putin, it was then that they decided. And you know that's it's that's letting the chips fall where they may. It took a lot of courage to go to Kiev. But the fallout from it is to be expected, and this is one of it. Well, you know, it was interesting because I heard that uh, that information that, well, basically it, it wasn't a phone call. It was more of uh, this is what we're doing, letting Moscow know what was going on. Moscow said, okay, we are aware. I was wondering if that changed anything that happened in the war on Ukraine uh, yesterday while Biden was there, just to make sure that something didn't happen uh, and that uh, some shots were inadvertently or advertently taken at Biden. Or advertently. Yeah. Absolutely. You you know, that's the type of thing where you don't want any miscalculations. And at the end of the day, if something had happened to Biden when he was there, we would be headlong, full frontal, right in the middle of World War III. Well, I understand that one of the things that uh, Russia does not want, and one of the reasons why they're backing out of this nuclear arms control pact, is they don't want anybody taking a look. Um, at, uh, they don't want inspections of their nuclear installations, which they wouldn't want anyway. But I mean, we've been hearing a lot of stuff about how, you know, the the great Russian Red Army really isn't that great anymore. Well, all you have to do is take a look at what's going on in Ukraine to let you know that uh, the great Russian Army, look, that's the United States of America is the largest spender of any nation in the world on uh, defense spending. I mean, and, and we're more than double the next largest spender, and that's Russia. And you take a look at what Russia has done in Ukraine, and it tells you that there's quite a difference between uh, the first spot and the second spot. And the fact of the matter is the Russian military has, has suffered a lot of setbacks because of uh, Ukraine. But the biggest problem, look, it's not hardware. It's the willingness to fight and the will of, of the people to, to uh, engage in Putin's war. Even the people in Russia don't want it. So it's a lot like the American Vietnam War effort in that regard. People are just sick and tired of it in Russia and don't want it. Well, I mean, in any, um, in any diplomacy, if we can call this that, there's always a dance that goes on. And uh, the best we can do is really take some indicators from one side and the other side. Um, this is a lot of saber rattling. Um, and, uh, I mean, what, what really can we read into this? How serious is this as a threat to world peace? Well, it's, it's a huge threat to world peace. It is saber rattling. But at the end of the day, it's saber rattling with a real saber. 
I mean, we're we're talking about not just position the, the position that uh, Russia has taken, the position the United States has taken, but if you take a look at what's going on in Ukraine, the Russian war there threatened the entire world, threatened the world's breadbasket. Ukraine is very responsible for you know for grain shipments and and for feeding the people of the earth. So this type of saber rattling, as you put it, has to be done because it's it's a an existential threat to the security and peace of the entire world. And so, you know, something had to be done. And you, you hope that at the end of the day, at, at this point, you have to hope that Biden has not miscalculated and this is the correct step to take. It's a very courageous step, but at the same time, a very dangerous one. Absolutely. And then we also have to consider that uh, it seems that there's at least greater cooperation between Russia and China, and that they seem to be lining up against the NATO allies. Yeah, well, you have to take that with a grain of salt, too, because the Chinese, if nothing else, uh, like to make money, and the Russian uh, war effort threatens that. Also, coming in at the number three spot in uh, uh, defense spending is China, and with what's happened in Russia, suddenly they're looking like they're number two instead of number three. So there's a lot it it looks like uh, China helping out Russia, but it's always China helping out itself first. Well, yeah, I think we've all had a, a number of examples of, of that happening over the years. Uh, Brian, unfortunately, that's all the time we have now, but uh, no doubt we'll be speaking to you again about this and other events as well. And I wanted to thank you for your time. Sure, always. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.